Please remain standing in honor of the reading of God's Word and take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, we've provided one for you in the seat in front of you. There's a, there's a Bible that you can use. We're going to be on page 473 in those Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, we want you to take that, take that with you as our gift to you so that you'll have the Scriptures in your home and, uh, and just uh, take that with you. Um, so we're going to start today, Matthew chapter 5. This is a portion of Scripture that's commonly known as the Sermon of, on the Mount. And we're going to read a very small portion of it. It covers the better part of three chapters. We're going to read just a few verses um, today, um, beginning in verse 17. And this is what we read. Jesus says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. It is absolutely impossible to understand the message of the Bible without seriously considering the law of God. In many ways, the the, the Bible is a book all about the law of God. And the relationship humanity is to have with it. it. It tells us why we needed a law and how a law was given and how that law was received and how that law was disregarded and how a solution was made to the problem of law breaking. Everything in the Bible, in one way or another, seems to center around the theme of the law. Now, this can be an incredibly shocking statement if you're a 21st century American Christian, because many of us have been taught to view God's law as as just a pesky annoyance, like some buzzing moral mosquito that just afflicts our consciences and, and ruins all of our fun. And so consequently, because of this, we've tended to understand the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, as a message that simply says that Jesus just got the law out of the way for us. He took the burden of of even having to think about that. So we don't have to give the demands of the law a second thought anymore. And that's how most of us have approached the gospel. And because of this, it can be really jarring for us to hear a statement from Jesus when he says things like, I have not come to abolish the law. I don't like that. And he also says, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law. In case you don't understand those terms, the iota is the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. The dot signifies a tiny little pinstroke used to differentiate Hebrew letters. And so Jesus is saying the smallest little elements of the law, none of it's going to pass away. He reinforces this position with a couple of back-to-back stern warnings. He says, whoever relaxes one of the least, not even the biggies, one of the least of these commandments, and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. And unless your righteousness, based on the law, exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom 
of heaven. Can you feel yourself drowning this morning? Jesus obviously had a very, very high regard for the law. But the water can get a little muddy for us if you're reading through the Bible. When you see things written in the later books of the New Testament that seem to push us away from the law. You read things like in Galatians 3.13, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. And then you you go backwards towards Romans 3.23 and you read the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Now these verses would seem to indicate that the law has been removed or supplanted or weakened by an act of Jesus Christ. But if that is true, what do we do with the verses like the ones we read at the beginning? What do we do? Those verses say that the law isn't going anywhere, and and they were uttered by no less than of a spiritual authority than Jesus Christ himself. And when people try to resolve this conundrum, their solutions usually result in one of two errors. The first possibility is an error called legalism. And this happens when we place too much emphasis on the law and we make doing right things the basis of our acceptance with God. This equates to righteousness through perfectionism. Just do it right, God will be okay with you. That's what we tell ourselves. The second possibility is, on the other end of the spectrum, it's called licentiousness. Now that may sound like a word you're not familiar with. What, what I would define it as is giving us, we, we read the Bible in such a way as to give us a license to sin. And we believe that because of something faith does in us, that we need to have very little or no regard at all for God's law. We sing, Jesus paid it all, and we just keep running up the bill. License is to think that you and I as believers have no real responsibility to grow in holiness. And we blame that on God. Well, Jesus took care of it all, so I don't have to worry about my sin anymore. So how do we navigate this apparent contradiction Jesus says the law is not passing away. Then Galatians says that we've been redeemed from the law. What is all, how do we figure this out? Well, many people, to try to figure this out, they assign an arbitrary sliding scale to violations of the law in order to make sense of it. You know what I'm talking about. For example, occasionally telling a white lie every now and then or talking back to your mama. Those are generally regarded as acceptable sins. You know what I'm talking about when you say acceptable sins. You know, if I, you know, if I tell a little white lie every now and then or, you know, disrespectful to my mom, I'm not getting kicked out of the church for that. Well, but murder, adultery, those are major league sins. Those are the big ones. And they're rarely or never okay in the eyes of most Christians unless they themselves are committing them. But does God, I want to ask you a very serious question because we're all guilty of creating this little sliding scale. I want to ask you a question. Do you think God has any regard at all for our sliding scale? Do you think it holds any weight, has any authority whatsoever in spiritual matters? See, all four of the sins I just mentioned, lying, disrespecting your parents, murder, adultery, all four of those sins make God's big ten list of don't do it. All four of them. And there's no, there's no you know, sliding scale on that list. He just says, thou shalt not, and he means it. In what way, in, 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 on another completely different matter, and if, if we're looking at the law and we say, well, we've got to observe it all, and because Jesus said it's not passing away, well, then what do we do with the dietary laws? For those of you unfamiliar with the Scripture, there's a lot of, of laws regarding even the way we eat. And I'm here to tell you that I've eaten a lot of pork in my life. 
and will probably continue to do so. I love me a big plate of shrimp more than almost anything in the whole wide world. Yet those things are forbidden in Scripture. What do I do with that? What about circumcision? That's a pretty big deal in Scripture. Are we required to observe all of the festivals? There's a long list of them. Are we required to keep bringing bloody sacrifices to God to be accepted by Him that are spelled out for us in the book of Leviticus? So how do we make the determination? We've got to observe this. We don't have to observe that. In order to discover the answers to some of these questions, let's go back to the beginning. Let's go back and take a look at how and, more importantly, why the law of God came to humanity. Now, we just recently talked about this, so you'll recall that at the end of the book of, of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, uh, Joseph had died. He had been there and he provided a home for the Israelites during the famine, and he died. And, and so the book of Exodus starts, and, and you see the Israelites enslaved in Egypt. The, a new Pharaoh rises up. He doesn't know Joseph, so he just declares one day, hey, all you Jews, you're slaves now. be a great way to live, right? But God, through tw- ten, uh, ten plagues, on their captors, on the Egyptians, and, and through dividing the Red Sea, he miraculously brings his people out of their slavery. And once they were freed, they begin to travel through the desert, and God brings them to the foot of a mountain called Sinai in the Arabian Desert. And through Moses, who is their leader, the Lord tells the Israelites what his intention is with them. Listen carefully to these words. This is Exodus 19.4. It says, you yourselves, he's talking to that generation, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. He's saying, hey, look, you were, you were slaves, you were trapped in Egypt, and I brought you out. It's like an eagle just taking you on its back and just carrying you out of there. Such, such was the miraculous nature of that deliverance. Now listen, verse 5. Now therefore, if... You will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me, two key phrases, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. See, God's intention was to have a people set apart for himself. He calls it in this passage a treasured possession. And they would be unique among all other peoples, all other nations, all over countries, all other peoples of the earth in two ways. First, they would be unique to him because of their relationship to him. He said that they would be a kingdom of priests. Priests are people that have access. They're people that that, uh, mediate for others between God and man. They would have access. They would be a kingdom of priests. That's the first distinction, their relationship to him. And secondly, they would be distinct because of their distinct way of living. They would be a holy nation. So they would have a relationship and they would have a distinct way of living. They would be marked out as God's people. Beginning in, the, in chapter 20, uh, in the very next chapter after that verse of Exodus, and throughout the rest of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, God lays out what their relationship to him and what their uniqueness among the other nations would look like. That worked out in a few ways. First, they were given a strict moral code. We call that the Ten Commandments. You may be familiar with it. It included four commandments instructing them on how they were to revere and honor God and six commandments dealing with how they were to live together as the people of God. They were given blueprints for a place to worship that would be the place that they were required to worship called the tabernacle. It's it's basically a big... Uh, a luxurious tent that they built. 
And, and, and they were given the blueprints of that, and they were forbidden to make other holy places on their own. They could, just couldn't say, we're going to worship here and here and here and here. They had the tabernacle. They were also given a priesthood and a sacrificial system that was, that was strictly governed for how it would be so that they would know how to approach God in the orderly way which he had approved. And then they were given certain dietary, as I mentioned earlier, dietary health hygiene laws that would keep them pure and radically distinguish them from all the other nations on the earth. And central to all this was the covenant of circumcision, which was required for every Jewish male, marking them for life as a true Israelite, one of God's people. Now, after being given these laws, very early on, after being given these laws, the Hebrews unanimously declared their resolve to observe them fully. Moses says, are you going to keep this law? He said, absolutely. We got this. We're going to do it. They said that they were going to observe them fully, but within days... They were already building idols, a couple of cows, golden cows, and they said, these are our gods. And then later after that, they fell into immorality and, and unbelief and increased idolatry. And so God declared that none of those people that he had freed from Egypt, not a single one of them, with the exception of just two, just two, would enter the land that he had promised to give them. After wandering in the desert for a full 40 years, can you imagine? We don't like to be outside in the heat for a day, but... After 40 years in the desert, that entire generation finally died off. So what happens next? Their children rise up. They, they enter the promised land. They take their possession of the promised land. And, and, and in, the, in that place, they renew the covenant. They say, all right, our, our parents blew it. Our grandparents blew it. We are in this thing. We're going to keep God's law. And they promise their allegiance to God's way. But they, too, failed miserably within just a generation or two. And depraved chaos ensued in the land. You can read all about it in the book of Judges. Later, they finally said, well, what we really need is a king. So they, they got themselves a king, and, and, and which became a line of, of many kings. And when they had kings, there would be some of those kings who would call the people back to holiness and say, hey, we got to turn our attention back to this law. But Sure enough, as soon as he would die, he would be succeeded by a king who was wicked and would lead the people back into idolatry. Wash, rinse, repeat. Over and over and over in the scripture. But then around that time of the kings, prophets began to rise up and they would speak of something that God was going to do that would change all of that. A new king was going to come and he was going to sit on David's throne and he would reign, the, the prophet said, in righteousness forever. You know what righteousness means? It means that he would keep the law. He was going to reign in righteousness forever. And the Spirit of God in this time would be poured out on everybody. On, on all of the king's people, the Spirit of God would be poured out. And one well-known of this, a well-known example, rather, of this forward-looking prophecy is found in Jeremiah. Look at it with me. Jeremiah 31, 33. It says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Listen to this. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Now watch. Notice that in this vision of a preferred future that the prophet lays out, and there's many more in the Old Testament just like this one, but in this vision, there is absolutely no talk of the law being removed there's no talk of it 
It never says, well, finally get this pesky law out of the way. He never says that the law will be removed. What it says is that it'll be relocated. It says that the law will change places. It, it was written on stone, but now it's going to be written on heart. When the fulfillment comes in the person of Jesus Christ, he's the one that the prophets were speaking of. And when he shows up, he actually ups the ante on the law. What? I thought Jesus was the nice, good teacher who walked around in sandals and loved everybody. But what we find if we look in this passage that I just read, and, and, and immediately following that passage, he actually ups the ante on the law. He didn't lighten the law's burden at all. In fact, he adds significant weight to it. Let me give you a couple of examples. He tells people that even though the law, they've been familiar with all their life, had absolutely forbidden adultery, he says that now we're pro- prohibited from lusting after others in the fantasy world of our hearts. Though the law said, thou shalt not murder Jesus says, now we have to slam on the brakes before we even get angry with people. He's telling them, listen, what's that all about? He's telling them that the actions of outward observance to a moral creed, they matter absolutely nothing if it springs from a corrupt and polluted heart. But these statements that Jesus made here, they primarily concern the moral laws. In a seeming, and I want to emphasize that word seeming, contradiction, Jesus takes an entirely different approach to the ceremonial laws. In Mark chapter 9, this is a great example of this, the Pharisees are in an absolute tizzy because the, the disciples did not ceremonially wash their hands before eating. This isn't a hygiene thing. This is a tradition thing. This is something that some, some Jewish father had said, this is what we do before we eat in, in a certain way at a certain time. And, and they had just blown that off. They, they, they ate without washing according to the tradition of the Jewish fathers. And Jesus, when they're complaining about, he calls them hypocrites. And he makes this incredible statement. He says, there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now, the disciples look just like some of you look right now. And they confess that they don't have any, any idea whatsoever what Jesus meant by that. And so Jesus responds this way. He says, and he said to them, then are you also without understanding? There, let me just pause here and say there's a lot of those types of scriptures in the, in the Gospels. I would hate to get that kind of rebuke from Jesus, first of all, and have it recorded for all human history, you know, for the, for, uh, for the, in the second place. So he says, uh, then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? And watch this. Thus, he declared all foods clean. Yes, for the pork. Yes, for the shrimp. Woo! And he said, what comes out of a person, verse 20, is what defiles him. For from within, watch this, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Once again, even in the case, like he did with the moral laws, with the, with the ceremonial laws, Jesus makes the heart the issue and not observant. While he affirmed and he reinforced the goodness of the moral law, in this passage, he knocks down, completely wipes out the traditional take on what one must do to be holy. And as well, he dismisses, as I said, the dietary foods 
the food laws uh, entirely when he says, thus he declared all foods clean. This is of vital importance to us. Now, now, please don't miss this point. This is of vital importance to us as believers today. Why? Because we live in a time in, in American Christianity where it's not uncommon for people to excuse in many ways their violations of the moral law of God. They, they break the law of God haphazardly and they make excuses for it. And it's a flagrant disregard for God's holiness. But, but sometimes those self-same people will insist upon observance of some version of ceremonial law. It may be, oh, you gotta, you got to worship on Saturday because that's the original Sabbath, or, or you've got to still follow those dietary restrictions, or maybe it's something even more modern like a code for acceptable music styles or clothing choices. This, this is not... This isn't, if the other is a disregard of God's holiness, this isn't a reinforcement of God's holiness. What this does is it constitutes a replacement of God's holy standard with a man-made counterfeit. What it's saying is, when I make my own rules, it's saying, God, you didn't go far enough. So I'm going to take it just another couple steps further. So how do we know, getting back to our original problem, which laws are to be kept and which laws no longer apply? I'll make it real easy for you, hopefully. Love is the key to understanding that question. Love is the key. Let me explain. If keeping a law is an expression of greater love toward God, the first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. I refuse to worship any other God because I love God. If keeping a law is an expression of greater love towards God, like the first four commandments, then obedience to that law is vitally important. If if a law is and keeping that law is an expression of greater love toward other people, like the last six commandments: don't kill, don't murder, or don't murder, don't steal, don't lie. If if it's an expression of greater love towards others, like the last six commandments, then obedience to that law is vitally important. Because John says in First John that I can't hate my brother and love God. If I hate my brother, he says you don't love God. No one ever mistakes my worship of other gods, my bowing before idols, my profaning of the name of God for evidence of my love for him. No one. Similarly, I would be really deluded if I think that I show you genuine love by lying to you, cheating you, stealing from you. That wouldn't be loving at all. Of course not. And, and Paul really wraps this up, talking about ceremonial things. He's using circumcision as, a, as an example here. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 6, he wraps this up in a beautiful one-verse package. He says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. But, that's not the end of the verse, but only faith working through love. He said, you can keep all of the, every Old Testament law, you can cross every T and dot every I. He said, but unless you are motivated because of your faith or because of love through your faith, then it means nothing. It means nothing. It doesn't matter at all. Whether you're circumcised, uncircumcised, whether you don't eat shrimp, do eat shrimp, doesn't matter unless it's faith working through love. I mentioned this early in the beginning of the service, but once Jesus was asked a question by a man who was an absolute expert in Old Testament law. He, he knew it up one side and down the other. And having heard and been impressed by an answer to other legal questions, he asked Jesus, he said, what is the greatest commandment of all? And Jesus' response, I read it earlier, he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God 
with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Watch this. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now, don't miss this. Do you understand what an astonishing statement Jesus is making? In the Jewish Torah, there are 613 laws. 613. But Jesus comes in and he distills every single one of those 613 laws down to two. Two laws. Love God, love everyone else as much as you love yourself. Jesus is saying that if you and I would set ourselves constantly about the business of loving God and loving others, that you and I would be morally perfect. That's quite a statement. Raise your hand if sitting there right now you're morally perfect. I'll wait. Of course not. But see, what Jesus is saying is that at the root of our moral imperfection is not, you know, because we're redheaded or our mama didn't breastfeed us. It's none of that. The root is that I either don't love God enough or I don't love people enough. And if I don't love people enough, it's because I don't love God enough. Two laws. Two laws to moral perfection. But wait, hold on, Mark. That's obviously Jesus is talking about moral law. What about the ceremonial law? Does faith working through love apply in cases of that set of laws as well? Well, in short, listen to me, if I observe if i insist on observing a law regarding food or holy days or circumcision etc because i think by doing so i'm contributing to my justification or if i think that it shows me to be more mature than dave if i'm doing it for those motivations listen to me i am woefully deceived and i have completely misunderstood the power of the cross of the lord jesus Christ. see what i've done is i've disregarded the love that jesus had for me and i think that I have something to do to, to earn a place in the home where I've already been freely adopted. If I just keep this, this, and this, I'll be accepted at God's table. No, I'm accepted at God's table because God accepted me at his table. It's all a work of him. It was not a work of me at all. I'm like the prodigal son. I, I crawl back home hat in hand to be a slave in a place where God has already given me an honored place as a son. The Jews had that ceremonial law, the dietary, the circumcision, all of that. They had that ceremonial law to signify that they were distinct, that they belonged to God. See, the equivalent for us as New Covenant believers is not a statute. It's faith. It's repentance. It's baptism. It's membership in the body of Christ. These are the indicators of our distinction as New Covenant believers, not whether you eat pork or not. But the rub in all of this is found that I, like the Jews who originally received the law, am completely inept when it comes to obeying God's law. Anybody else? I'm no good at this. I've tried. Uh, this year I'm going to turn 48 years old, and for at least at least 32 of those years I have tried really hard to get this right. I'm no closer now than when I first started. I can't keep God's law on my own. I, I, I can't keep, by, under no stretch... I, can I keep 613 laws? Even when, even when Moses narrows it down to 10 for me, I, I can't do any better with that. So Jesus comes along and says, okay, I'll make it real easy on you. I'll just give you two. I'll blow that pretty hard too. Most of us believe that God will forgive us for our failure to keep his laws. Do you believe that? But what if I told you, what if I told you that that's not enough? What if I told you that it's not enough to just believe that God will forgive your failures to keep his law. See, God's requirement 
is that the law must be fully kept. That righteousness has to be unblemished. That it has to be perfection. Even Jesus in that Sermon on the Mount said, Be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Anybody gasp a little bit at those words? God's requirement is that the law must be fully kept or that the offender must be destroyed. You may not like it, may strike you as unfair, but God's holiness depends on it. It demands it. If God merely winks at sin and he doesn't demand obedience, by doing so he becomes less holy and that is an impossibility. He cannot be less holy than perfectly holy. So what are we to do? We're in a mess, folks. Paul wrote about the same conundrum in Romans chapter 7. He, he talked about how he was incapable of doing what he knew he should, and he always seemed to wind up doing the things that he knew he shouldn't. Can anyone here relate to that? Anybody? At the end of the chapter, he cries out in total desperation. He says, wretched man that I am. Wretched man, miserable, hopeless Dying, drowning man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Wow, what a desperate, hopeless cry. I cannot tell you how often or even how regularly I feel this same disgust for my frail faith and my sinful tendency. But see, it's Paul's answer to his own rhetorical question that is the answer to the whole problem of the law. And it's this. Paul says, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Who is going to deliver this wretched man from this body of death? Ah, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. God's righteous requirement in the law must be kept. And I am here to proclaim to you, thank God it has been. It has been kept. It has been perfectly kept without any flaw. His law will never pass away. It will never be removed. But I'm never going to get any better in myself at keeping it. So I needed someone to keep it for me. And thank God I had someone to keep it for me. I am only forgiven today because someone better than me both fulfilled the law perfectly for me and took the punishment I deserved as a lawbreaker. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, because he's done this for me, the law for me, when I read it, it's no longer a got to issue for me. It's a get to issue for me. The law has now been written on my heart and in joy by the power of the Holy Spirit. I am growing in my ability to obey it. But this is not because I fear punishment for my misdeeds. God's not hanging me over hell, but because I love the one who has redeemed me from the curse. And so for the first time, I want to obey. I want to be pleasing to him. And it grieves me when I fail to, but not because of his judgment, but because of my love, uh, my love for him in response to his love for me. He went first. John puts it this way in 1 John four seventeen. He says, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, first of all, he's saying that this love, those two commandments that Jesus gave us that I have so much struggle with, that in God, in, in Christ, 
by my faith in Christ, that's, that love is being perfected in me. And that I have confidence. I am not afraid of hell, folks. Not because I've got my moral you know, ducks in a row, but because Jesus has already paid the price for me. And because, and then he says this, because as he is, so also are we in the world. Do you know what he's saying? That God looks at us just as he looked at his sinless son because we're in Christ. As he is, so also are we in this world. Now watch, there is no fear in love. Woo, that's good news. There's no fear in love. And God has loved you if you are in Christ. The perfect love casts out all fear. For fear has to do with punishment. You know why we're afraid of breaking the law? Because we know we're going to get punished for it. But whoever fears has not been perfected in love. If your motivation to do better is to avoid hell, you have not been perfected in love. You haven't been perfected in love if you're just trying to get some some fire insurance for yourself. But he says we love because he first loved us. I wouldn't even have the ability to love him if he hadn't loved me first. He did the work, and now I'm just the benefactor. I get to walk in love with him because he loved me first. Jesus said that the law would never pass away until, (laughs) until all is accomplished. Jesus Christ, hanging on the cross, dying for the sins of men and women, boys and girls, proclaimed with a loud voice, it is finished. In Christ, all is accomplished. All is done in Christ. So I am freed from the curse of the law, and I am able by the Spirit's power to joyfully and lovingly obey. Jesus said that my righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees, and able to enter the kingdom of God. And I'm telling you, that's a tall order. That's a tall order. Now, you you may have a negative view of the Pharisees, but I'm telling you, as far as legal observance, even Paul said it about himself when he was a Pharisee, those guys were rock stars. They were flawless in keeping the, 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 the actions of the law. But I stand before you, and I am confident with all of my frailty, with all of my failing, that right here, right now, standing before you, I have a much better righteousness than any Pharisee that ever lived. Why? How is that even possible? It's only because I do not stand here with Mark Sharp's righteousness anymore. I have been freely given the righteousness of Jesus Christ to wear throughout all eternity as my very own. And that is the good news of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you have redeemed us from the curse of the law, yet you have not removed from us the law, God, but you have written it on our hearts and given us the ability to desire what you desire, to love what you love, to hate what you hate, and to grow in the grace to do the things that are pleasing to you. So God, I pray that you would just be with us, Lord, as we just seek daily to surrender to you, to to love you more like you told us uh, was the keeping of the law and to love others better as you told us was the keeping of the law. God, I pray that you would just enable us to do that. Not for fear, not for fear of judgment, but just because of our deep, passionate, abiding, burning love for you, Lord God. Help us, Lord Jesus, to love you. Help us, Lord Jesus, to devote ourselves to you, to hunger for you, to thirst for you to look to you. God, we love you. Lord Jesus, go with us today. Be our strength. Be our our hope. Lord, I pray that if anyone is here who does not know you, who has never surrendered their life to be your disciple, Lord, 
God, where they're, they haven't just done an action like the Pharisees did, but they haven't given their heart to you, Lord God. I, I pray that you would awaken their heart today, that you would cause them to come to life by the power of the Spirit of God to come and follow you, to serve you. Lord, I pray that they would not let fear keep them from coming to you. I pray that they wouldn't let a false sense of salvation keep them from running to you. Lord, for the rest of us that are discouraged and distraught because of our struggles with sin, even as we are believers, Lord, I pray that you would just give us the confidence to know that you have declared it is finished, Lord God, and that you have written your law in our hearts, and it is by your Spirit's power that you teach us to obey. Father, I thank you for that. Lord, be, be strong in our midst throughout this week. Be, be everything to us. Be glorious, Lord God. Help us to find you worthy of our worship, worthy of our attention, Lord God. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for this day and for these people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.